You're listening to the EM Ottawa podcast. Yes, we're back with another episode of the EM Ottawa podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thamanathan. Back with our first real sequel episode, I guess you could call it. It's a part two. It's like tick-borne illnesses two, tick harder, tick-borne illnesses two, tick to the future, T2, Judgment Day. I don't know what I'm saying. I wish I hadn't recorded that, but I'm not going to delete it. Uh, It's the second part. In part one, uh, we covered Lyme disease questions and updates. And in this one, we're going to cover a slightly lesser known entity, something called anaplasmosis, which is all the buzz these days. And our guest is the one and only Dr. Mickey McGinty. She completed her residencies in internal medicine and infectious disease at the Ottawa Hospital, and she's now a clinician scientist whose work typically focuses on HIV cure, women with HIV, and maternal fetal immunology with a view to advancing our understanding of maternal vaccination. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, she also worked on clinical trials of COVID-19 therapies, vaccines, and on studies of the immune response to SARS-CoV-2. So get ready to learn about human granulocytic anaplasmosis caused by anaplasma phagocytophyllum. Okay, so moving on from Lyme disease, we're going to talk about anaplasmosis. That's another tick-borne illness that's also carried by the Ixodes tick, and it's one that I'm way less familiar with. I mean, I gotta be honest, I only really started hearing about this in the past year. Mickey, why are we hearing more and more about this disease entity so recently? Well, I, that's like an existential question. <laughs> I mean, sorry, it comes back to the Lyme problem. So these, this is a bug that infects the same ticks. Um, this, the Ixodes scapularis ticks in our region. It also uh, has a Western cousin it likes, but we don't have that tick here. And though, as those ticks become more numerous and they are infected, then we're going to see more cases of the infections that they carry on them in our community. So it really just has to do with the evolution of the habitat of the ticks and therefore exposure to the bacteria buddies <laughs> they're carrying around in their gut. <laughs> Sorry, um, is, that a, is that an ID term? Is that what you guys call <laughs> Bacterial buddies. <laughs> they're little, they're hitchhikers. <laughs> right. Yeah, anaplasma and the Lyme. And, and the reason you haven't heard about it before is because we did not see it. So up, in, so up until this year, I had never seen it. Um, and there were only, I think, two case reports of Ontario acquired anaplasma infection in the last five years before this. Oh, wow. Um, and those were in the um, Toronto area, like Burlington and Niagara which makes sense because those are southern areas which might have seen the ticks earlier. But we also weren't looking for it. And it wasn't until we had a couple cases this year that were very classic presentations of anaplasma that we, we cottoned on that it was here. So it's probably been here. There probably were cases that were, we weren't detecting because we weren't testing for it. But this year, it's definitely here. As far as I know, we've had a, at least five cases in the hospital settings in Ottawa. And our friends in Kingston tell us they've been seeing it for a few years. Gotcha. And is the geographical distribution going to be identical to that of Lyme because they use the same vector, that Ixodes scapularis tick? Yeah, it's it'll be it's identical to to Lyme's um, epi, generally speaking. Yeah, part of the reason I'm asking is that this disease, human granulocytic anaplasmosis, or HGA, that's caused by the anaplasmo, anaplasma uh, bacteria. It's more common in Europe. Do I have that right? 
Gorgeous. Yeah, HGA is much more common in, in Europe. Um, it infects a different tick there, which might have to do with why it, it has a higher predilection. I don't, it might, there might be different dynamics of the tick population it lives in that, that account for that. Um, or the host may be better suited to it or than Exodes is, for instance. Right. So is it something that people who live in non-endemic parts of North America, do do they still need to be aware of this? You know, I'm oh, thinking like maybe for returning, returning travelers? travelers? Not really. Um, uh, we've looked for it occasionally. Uh, the thing is, if you if it's going to happen, you typically get sick about a week later. So if you're still, you have to be exposed still, right? So it still requires you to be doing activities in a rural setting um, where there's lots of uh, like long grass or, or low brush that those uh, ticks end up being in. So if you're not exposed, then there's not a reason, just like anything else on your travel differential, to to move it up the list. You've already alluded to this idea of a, quote, classic presentation. What does that look like when it's in front of you in the emergency department? So anaplasma um, doesn't have a, a great distinguisher like Lyme does. It doesn't have like a classic rash that can almost only be that thing. Um, anaplasma is more subtle. It's just a febrile summer illness and it presents like the way a lot of summer viral diseases would. So people have fever, they often have uh, fatigue, like quite intense fatigue, myalgias, they can have headache that can be quite bad. And uh, about half of them will also have some GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, or, or diarrhea. But that's a little less common and that's um, just typically you just get fever, headache, and feel like crap. Gotcha. Summertime viral illness. It's like the uh, summer flu. Yeah, summertime flu. It's like an arb. It presents sort of like an enterovirus or an arbovirus infection. Just fever, not feeling well. Mm-hmm. Classic arboviruses, which I have. <laughs> I definitely have an archetype for it in my head. Yeah. yeah. Are there any populations that might present sicker? Is there anyone that, like, can it can it cause critical illness? Yeah, so um, unlike with Lyme, probably the majority of people who get anaplasma have a self-limited illness, um, where even if it's not detected, they might get sick and then they will recover and that will be it. It doesn't stick around or cause a chronic disease. And it doesn't have a late phase of presentation like Lyme does. So um, most people will be fine whether you catch them or don't catch them with the illness. But it can cause severe illness, including syndromes that look like septic shock uh, because of uh, cytokine response to the infection. And you can have multi-organ system failure as a result, including brain disease, myocardial involvement, respiratory failure, severe hepatitis, renal failure. All of these things can occur with anaplasma when it gets severe. And uh, it has a case fatality rate somewhere in the ballpark of 1%, which is not like the most benign. Yeah, it's not <laughs> as nothing. As far right? as yeah. diseases go. Yeah, the numbers I saw were, you know, like, you know, 3 to 5% have like a fair bit of morbidity and like 1% each getting some form of uh, meningoencephalitis and or death, right? Like, so that's like, yeah, if, yeah. There's, if there's enough of them, if we're getting you know, whatever it is, like, you know, five and then increasing per year. It's like, yeah, it's worth, worth and knowing that's, about And the, that's the iceberg that, that I'm seeing, right? Like, I don't see patients presenting with fever and headache. Nobody calls me to the emergency room to see someone because they have fever and headache. I see them when they're uh, critically ill in our intensive care unit and no one is sure what's wrong with them. Yeah. Um, and those are the cases that we've been catching this year. Some less severe, but almost all the ones that we've been involved with have 
all the ones that we've been involved with have been in patients who required hospitalization for management of the illness. So that suggests to us that there is likely quite a, a significant number of people in the in the area who are, have anaplasma that is not that severe, that hasn't required ongoing medical management, right? Because it would baffle logic that we, we own, not only is it new here, but it's also only causing severe disease here. Yeah, it's funny, right? Because in the last year, those milder cases, you know, we might have just worked up with a COVID test that ends up being negative and they get better at home. That, uh, that list of people that might get sicker in the case reports I was looking at, it seemed like it was older people that might be at risk of getting sort of that SERSI cytokine storm of ARDS and other complications. Yeah, people over 60 and people with um, H- advanced HIV disease or uh, other T-cell immunodeficiency like organ transplant recipients um, are at particular risk for those severe complications. Right. So good to know who those high risk populations might end up being. And I wanted to before we but I wanted to say, I, I'll, I though I have said, most people get better. And it's an, a self limiting illness with anaplasma, if you suspect or diagnose the infection, it should be treated because some people will go on to develop severe disease. And it uh, always gets if it's going to get worse, waiting to treat will also result in a worse outcome from for in terms of morbidity and mortality. So if you were diagnosing anaplasma, it should be treated and not not managed expectantly as though it's going to recover. Right. So awareness of the disease and treating it is important. I'll keep that in mind. Now, you've talked about the, the clinical findings as they are directly in front of you, but are there any other clues that can help us make the diagnosis while they're in the emergency department, say blood work or something else? Um, yeah. So anaplasma, if it's you know, moderate, like if it probably if people are sick enough that they would present to somewhere like an emergency room to be assessed, it's quite common to see uh, cytopenias in particular thrombocytopenia and leukopenia more than anemia and uh, mild biochemical hepatitis. So if seeing those things together at the right time of year in somebody who has had an exposure to a rural setting um, where we're in our geographic area where we know there are ticks, uh, should trigger you to think anaplasma uh, could be the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And it's one area where the, the, the blood work may be helpful. Like that pattern is is quite consistent in, in the cases we see that are sick. And is there any role for things like serology or a blood smear when you're working that up like in the acute phase of the illness? I think this one is a, is a challenging one for, the, for an emergency uh, department answer because at the end of the day, the test... A uh, test that you can do that's going to help you assess and manage the patient in a timely fashion while they're in front of you is not the best one. So you can do microscopy and ask hematop- the hematopathologist to review the slides to look for morulae, which are um, bacterial bodies that are intracellular because anaplasma is an intracellular infection. And the classic um, cell line that it infects is neutrophils. So you can ask the hematopathologist to look for anaplasma and they will do some stains and see if they see morelay in, in the neutrophils of the patient. It's a 25 to 75% sensitive, depending on the, the study that you use. And the, the range probably has more to do with uh, the timing of the test than it does with how good the test is itself. So the morelay appear very early in the disease course. So they're there at the beginning of, of the disease in the first three to five days of infection. There, it's much easier to find them than it is later in the course of the illness. By the way, that word you're using, morule, I, I know what you're saying because it's written down like in front of me. Just for everyone else who's listening, it's M-O-R-U-L-A-E. Yeah. Morule. 
That's going to be and the spelling bee, the ID spelling bee. <laughs> the ID 20, spelling bee. 2022, which I've been going to every year. It's amazing. It's I actually. tried to look, like I was thinking about this and I was trying to look up why we call it a morala because more, the, the actual definition of morala is kind of like a, a growth, right? It's like a tumor, basically. It's yeah. like a growing condensed wall of cells, which is not really what, what is happening in with an anaplasma morally, but I think it's just a historic term that was used. Yeah, I, I mean, I as soon as I heard it, I was like, wait, embryology? Wait, what are we talking yeah. about? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't thought about that since first year medical school. Not something that the Emerge doc thinks about <laughs> a whole lot. Uh, so what other tests can we possibly look at for diagnosing this? There is also serology. The problem is serology is really only diagnostic when it's paired. So um, you need a, an acute one while they're sick, and you need a paired convalescent sera when they're better, and you need to look for a change in um, the antigen titer to know if there actually was acute infection or not. Um, and there is also a PCR test, uh, and that is what's used most because it's the most sensitive test. So in places where anaplasma is quite common, that's the sort of test of choice. Um, you can draw the blood and send for the PCR test in our world because it's a rare disease and PCR is a complex test in our, in our healthcare system. It takes a long time to get the PCR result back. So wait, so is there any value for the eMERGE doc to be sending these, like either the PCR or the serology, or should they just send a CBC and LFTs and just be done with it there? So I would make a pitch for yes, because it will, um, if they're positive, it will still be helpful in retrospect if the patient isn't getting better or they're referred to ID to help figure out if that really was <laughs> what was happening. Yeah. Because if, we, if you don't do it when, they're, when it's acute, then there's nothing we can do later. The PCR will be negative as soon as they've been treated. And you won't know and, how to interpret the convalescent serology. And the convalescent serology alone won't be diagnostic. So it would be it's really helpful for workup and management, even if you don't know if that testing is going to be completed to, to send it. It will also, this is sort of one of the systems healthcare things um, around these problems. Anaplasma presently is not a reportable disease in Ontario. So um, public health labs aren't, you don't have to notify them. Our lab doesn't notify public health when they identify some anaplasma. Public health does, though, do the PCR and the serology testing in their labs. So this uh, ultimately is the way that will be helpful for assessing how much anaplasma there is. If we're never sending them tests that they can record, document, and then count, we probably won't generate data about how much anaplasma there is. Yeah, that's a good sell. I, I buy that. That's a, a good reason to do it. And, you know, I, I can imagine... Uh, the practice pattern of a lot of docs might be to refer these patients just because it is a disease entity that we're, we're probably generally less familiar with. So Yeah, there's no problem with it, with that. Referring ana suspected anaplasmas to us for review is also helpful to us. I mean, although I've read a lot about anaplasmosis, I had never seen any before this year. So we are still learning um, how you know, in real life what this disease looks like and, and how, how people uh, evolve and recover through the illness. Okay, so let me hit you with a few questions about how to treat anaplasmosis. Does a prophylactic dose that you might be giving for doc, uh, of doxy for Lyme disease change the likelihood of developing anaplasmosis? Yeah, so the, the prophylaxis um, is neither here nor there. It, it won't, it's not been um, established that a dose of doxycycline will work as prophylaxis for anaplasma. But if they've got risk factors for anaplasma, then they have risk factors for Lyme, and it should not interfere with your prophylaxis of Lyme disease, if there's, even if there's a question of potential co-exposure. 
Um, so you should give the doxy for the Lyme exposure and not worry about whether that has anything to do with anaplasma. Right. But does that Lyme prophylaxis dose of doxy have any effect on anaplasma? Not that we know. Right. Um, okay. it's, not, it's not established as an effective prophylactic for anaplasmosis. Mm-hmm, right. I mean, it stands to reason that it might, because anaplasma, even more than Lyme, is very susceptible to doxycycline. So it makes reasonable sense that doxycycline might be helpful as a prophylactic agent for anaplasma, but we, we don't have data to tell us that. And in the largest population where these things sort of co-infect people and we have good healthcare uh, resource observation, we're giving the doxy for Lyme anyway, and it's much harder to measure anaplasma. So it's going to be real hard to know. <laughs> and if it's so sensitive to doxy, and people now with the most recent IDSA guidelines might be dropping the duration of their treatment from 21 days to 10 days, is that still adequate to cover for anaplasmosis? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So for anaplasma, you need as little as seven days. Um, and in general, where we deal with co-infections, we're often reminding people that if they're treating anaplasma, they should probably not treat shorter than 10 days because of the likelihood of co-infection with Lyme disease being there. So you want at least 10 days for the Lyme. So 10 days is the shortest course I would recommend someone give for anaplasma, but 14 days is, is the total course required. Even if you're critically ill in the ICU on a ventilator, 14 days is still all that's required for treatment of the anaplasma because it is very doxycycline sensitive to the point where we can't do our diagnostic testing usually after the first couple of doses of doxycycline because we won't detect any more anaplasma. Oh, well, okay. That's good to know. And, you know, from what I read about these, like, critically ill anaplasma patients, they get better really quickly. Is that true? Yeah, it's, it's a very doxycycline response. I mean, there, there's the critical illness part, right? At a certain point, it, sto- it, it stops being how bad the infection is and, and becomes how you recover from a critical illness Right, your, your so, re- renal failure or your ARDS or whatever, right? So Yeah, then those take however long they take to recover them. But because it, it's um, the, the mechanism for this is similar to, you know, what people have gotten used to with COVID, it's, it's an immune-mediated phenomenon, and it's centered on the antigen that's presented by anaplasma. So if you remove the antigen, which happens quickly, thankfully, with treatment, it's very susceptible to the drug then uh, the antigen goes away, the immune stimulus goes away, and things go back to normal pretty quickly. Um, And then you just have, you know, if you had injury done to your lungs or to your kidneys or to your brain, then those things may take their time to recover. So do you think uh, we should be given doxy before the CASPO for the uh, (laughs) critically ill patients? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I mean, if they're on the side of Phoenix and have hepatitis and you don't know what's wrong with them, it's doxy. It's sort of one of those, like, it's sort of a, an ID physician's joke. Like, d- you, no one should die without a course of doxycycline <laughs> because all of the weird <laughs> diseases that make you ill and, and you shouldn't have them. But for some reason, you have this weird tick-borne illness. Almost all of them are treated with doxycycline, and it really does make them better really fast. So when we don't know what to do, we often do recommend doxycycline. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cheap drug. It's a good drug. If you recommend it, I'll give it. Uh, okay, so what is your threshold? or what? Uh, maybe I'll rephrase that. What should be my threshold to treat someone for suspected anaplasmosis if they have this like vague history of a tick-borne exposure um, but maybe let's say that CBC and LFTs don't have the exact slam dunk typical findings that you were talking about. 
Should I wait until the serological test confirm that there's been an infection It'll or just treat It'll take a long back? time. Yeah. So if, if you, um, and well, this is this kind of question and answer is typically going to provoke a lot of anxiety while people don't have experience with the, with the condition and, and the outcomes of it. Um, and so there's a lot of uncertainty about whether your clinical gestalt is correct about the diagnosis here because you don't have a, a great confirmatory test to, to confirm it for you. Um, I would say that it, it treating, if you are, believe that the person has anaplasmosis, I would tend to err on the side of treatment rather than observation. Um, and that's, by that I mean, if you have a patient in front of you who has a history of an exposure and the incubation period for anaplasma is usually much less variable than for Lyme, it's about one or two weeks. So some, if they've been away sometime in the last two weeks and now they have fever, myalgias, bad headache, maybe some nausea, vomiting, and they've got biochemical hepatitis and thrombocytopenia, I would be pretty convinced that that could be anaplasma and that a course of doxycycline would be helpful. What about that that exact patient with normal blood work? I, I don't know that I would be convinced to offer treatment to that person, but I would counsel them that if their symptoms get worse over the next few days, they should probably be seen again and the tests repeated. That's fair. I think that's a very reasonable way to approach that. Because you got to think too, like, I, I don't know how much of this is the, you know, specialist lens of like what gets funneled to you, that selection bias, right? Because like, we live in, you know, uh, Southern Ontario, Eastern Ontario, like a lot of people have been to a cottage, you know, in the last two weeks during summer, <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. Uh, so it's it's so hard to like, it's like, oh, you know, where does my, the word you use, like, you know, where does that anxiety level have to be that uh, pretest sort of probability? Probability, you, yeah. I, like I, ha I have no reference point. This is like a new diagnosis to me. And I think that's why a lot of people have that uncertainty around it. My takeaway is that like having that supporting lab evidence with like a typical story and a recent exposure, that's probably enough to, you know, go ahead and pull the trigger and do it uh, and otherwise have some like good return to ED instructions around that. Yeah, and or call, if you are pretty sure it's anaplasma or even kind of sure it's anaplasma, but you are feeling uncertain about whether to offer treatment or not, this, like at this stage of our um, exposure to this disease, this is a good, that's a good case, even in a pretty well patient to call ID and ask them for, because it will give not only you some reassurance about shared decision making in terms of treatment, but it will also give the ID physician experience and exposure in the in the presentation of these illnesses and, and improve our ability to differentiate them too. Plus, you get to show off that you knew the word Morila. <laughs> yeah, plus I'll ask if you sent uh, the sneers to look for Morile and yeah. I'll get to okay. sound very smart. Okay. Good to know. Uh, just always trying to impress my consultant colleagues uh, <laughs> and uh, mixed, mixed results. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about the blood testing is um, Epic doesn't have anaplasma set up. I mean, this is a very TOH specific problem, but Epic doesn't have anaplasma set up as a specific test for, for blood films. So what we have been doing so far when we have been suspicious is actually calling the hematopathology bench and warning them that that's what we're sending a smear to look for so that they know to go and look at it. You can write it in the comments of the blood film or order a malaria smear and write it in the commentary. But in our experience, those comments get missed a lot by the people who are triaging the order as it comes down because it's just a reception, basically. Yeah. So we usually do call to make sure that the hematopathologist is expecting the smear and we'll read it for you, you know, promptly. By the way, shout out to hematopathologists. I know you and I both have a, 
a soft spot for them. They're the unsung heroes of these diagnosing these infections. Yeah, or, they make us look very smart. <laughs> And they can't find the problem in their blood smear and we can fix the patient. Yeah, nothing like seeing that surprise. Hey, man, I'm just comment on what you thought was routine blood work, right? Yeah. Cool. So listen, is there anything else you wanted us, your Emerge colleagues, to know about anaplasma? It's never the wrong time to offer preventative counseling for tick bites. I know that's not really what we see our jobs as, usually as acute care providers after the fact. But just because somebody got a tick bite and got a disease from it that needed to be treated doesn't mean that they understand that they should or how to avoid that in the future. So um, giving some advice on tick prevention while they're there is a good capture time. And and really nothing is better than prevention, as we've been saying all year about this COVID vaccine. Don't have a vaccine, so all we can do is stop the ticks from biting us. Yeah, and maybe on that note, I will do a shout out to the Ottawa Public Health website that has an excellent section for both Lyme and anaplasmosis, uh, not just for the, you know, the public for things to watch out for, but uh, counseling about how to do tick checks and whatnot. Uh, tick hygiene, I guess you might say. Um, so you should go check that out. Or if your region has an equivalent thing, maybe check that out, too. Dr. Mickey McGinty, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and uh, chatting to me about all this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was lots of fun. And that's it for Tick-Borne Illnesses Part 2, Anaplasmosis, with ID physician Dr. Mickey McGinty. Big thanks to her for spending time with us over these past two episodes, which were honestly a real blast to record. I know I learned a ton. You can follow her on Twitter at MYKKYMCG. If you want to check out more great FOMED content from the group here in Ottawa, please go to the emottawablog.com. Thanks as always to Yusang for providing our music. That's him you heard on the intro, this outro, and all the little bits in between. If you've got something you want to hear about on this show, or if it's just a case or a topic you want to talk about, please get in touch. You can always follow and message me on Twitter, at Rajiv Thava, that's R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. Can't wait to see you again on the next episode. And I asked, like, you know, what do you guys want to know about Lyme and anaplasmosis? And hold on, I'm going to find it for you here. Literally, so I won't name the physician, but one physician responded, uh, non-infectious disease docs have this conception about ID docs that they think no one should die without a course of doxy, true or false. <laughs> this was literally one of the questions I was asked to ask you, and unprompted you brought it up. So I just want to say... Hey. It is a it is a true and deep philosophy of the ID profession that no one should die without a course of doxycycline. Right. <laughs>